Hello and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. So Liam, I was just on cloisterbell.co.uk and I've just realised this is our first Tom Baker TV story that we'll be talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it's actually quite surprising that it's taken us this long to get round to Tom Baker because arguably he's still the most, um, well, he's certainly the most recognisable and he still remains one of, uh, well, a vast majority of fans' favourite. Yeah, um, for some reason I thought, I'll go, I forgot what we've done, I'll, I'll go on the website and have a look. I thought maybe we've done one or two, but no, you know, apparently not. No, no. Um. I feel like one of the series, season 12 stories, feels like a good um, point to start at, you know, with the um, the whole Blu-ray situation that's going on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I'm, fort- I'm fortunate enough to have the season 12 uh, box set um, until someone uh, breaks in my house and just uh, exclusively steals that, given how, m- given how much people are selling the thing for now. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so I've got, uh, I'm actually in the ownership of a very priceless artefact. Um... Yeah, uh, season 12, uh, Tom Baker's first season as the Doctor, broadcast 1974 to 75. Um, one thing that they did in this season, for the arguably for the first time in quite a while, which was to have every story interlinked. So Robot, which was the first story, ended going straight into the Ark in Space, and the Ark in Space ended going straight into the Centauran experiment, which is the story that we're looking at today. That, I love that because you'd think standalone stories would be more accessible to the viewers, mm-hmm. but this continuity that flows it makes it feel really good, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does, and it certainly it works uh, for this uh, season. Um, so you got this interesting narrative device, and with two of the stories, the Ark in Space and the the season finale, which is Revenge of the Cybermen, um, they use the same space station space station nerva and some of the same sets um as a budget uh consideration but you're not aware of that when you're watching the stories you know no. you, you know you, what you're just taking on board is just oh these are these are interesting good stories yeah and when you consider the santaran experiment for what it is you could call it like a filler episode couldn't you because it's so short um but in the grand scheme of things, it just feels like a stepping stone, doesn't it, throughout the season? Yeah, yeah. Well, as you said, because uh, this story is very short, it's it's only two episodes long, which classic Doctor Who did very rarely. The, uh, prior to the Suntoran experiment, the last time they did that was in 1965 with the rescue, so back in the Hartnell era. Yes. Um, I've got the DVD here, and it's got a big sticker on the front that says Special Value Edition. So that's how the mar- the marketed that. Yeah, I remember that. Um, they had decided that for the, for the DVD releases, there would be certain releases. I think this was the first one, uh, which was marketed as such, which was the idea was because these were quite short um, stories yeah, that they would 49 just... 49 minutes, yeah. Yeah, that they would just chuck it out uh, because there was very little um, special, arguably special features that they could make of it. But to be honest, I don't think, I don't think it stuck because um, I think the another one which was Black Orchid, which was another two part uh, back in the Davison era. But then you had the Awakening, 
mm-hmm. uh, which is another two-parter. But that was put in a box set with the Hartnell story, The Gunfighters. Well, the the special value sticker came. The, I think that really did catch my eye because mm-hmm. um, I thought, oh, what a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so I did grab it. Yeah. When I was making notes, um, when I was watching Santoran Experiment, mm-hmm. um, I went to write the Santoran Experiment experiment on my phone, and it just auto corrected it to the Santoran Experiences Meet. <laughs> All right, okay. It, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we don't have to include that. <laughs> no, 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 do I think that's quite funny. <laughs> Hang on, I've got to see, I've got to see what it, it comes up on my phone when I, if I try and do a text. Hang on. So when I do it on my phone, it corrects to the Suntaran. Hang on. The Suntaran is a bit of a throwback. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Well, that's what my predictive text is coming up with. The Centauran is a bit of a throwback, but I think it will be a bit of a Go on. time lord for the first time in a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what my predictive text comes up with. Brilliant. Um. So yes, the um, Suntaran Experiment, it's a filler episode we can agree on. Um, it has a recycled villain. Mm-hmm, yep. Um, it was filmed on location, but the scope of that was very limited. You know, it was just open fields or rocks. And in spite of that, it looks quite good, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, it's shot on uh, Dartmoor and... It's uh, it's actually a really really good location for the story. It suits it very well. There's quite uh, a bleak. Um, it's it's quite bleak, and it certainly lends the story uh, a unique atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and the way that the first episode itself is structured, even though that we know that the uh, that there's going to be a Santaran in it, uh, because of because of the title giving it away. <laughs> though yeah, it's it's like it's like it's like. Uh, it's yes, because like, we've got that, that cliffhanger at the end yeah, when the Santaran walks out. Yeah, but it, it yeah. still works. It's still effective. And there's yeah. this whole thing that there's this alien up in the rocks and um, the way that it's shot in Rodney Be- uh, Bennett's direction, it uh, certainly uses the location very well. It is yeah. very effective. As good as that cliffhanger is, uh, it had me thinking, you know, if you haven't seen the Time Warrior mm-hmm. and this Santaran walks out and Sarah just says, Links, it's like it's like she just got a waft from him. <laughs> you need some body spray. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. I think I think funny enough. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think I did actually watch the Suntaran experiment before I watched uh, the Time Warrior. But then the thing is, being Doctor Who fans, I was aware of Links. So yeah, I know what you mean. You didn't think you needed some body spray. No, you, you, did, you, you did. You did get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think it was some sort of uh, product placement. But, um, well, funny enough, it was uh, when... uh, Because this was also the very first... Because I think this was the very first story that was uh, shot for season 12. So this was the first story that was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe. And there's that story that when... um, Because they shot uh, the way that they were filming it all the monitors and everything were quite some distance away. So when Elizabeth Sladen performed that scene, Philip Pinchcliffe had been watching it, watching it on a monitor uh, f- further down the hill. 
I was so impressed with her performance and found it so uh, gripping. Uh, he actually he actually ran up the hill just to tell Elizabeth Sladen that that was just a brilliant performance. That's cool. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> so, um, so just talking about that, do you think it's a good cliffhanger? Um, I liked it. It mm. wasn't. Um, now that you now that you've asked me, maybe it's not a good cliffhanger, <laughs> <laughs> but it it is good. <laughs> you know, it's enjoyable. I mean, yeah. No, um, no I, I was just asking it in general, um, just because we, we happen to be talking about it. So, um, I mean, I had think... it be, had it been a reveal, like a genuine reveal mm-hmm. that we weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. That would have been good. Yes, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But I, I, yeah, yeah, it probably we did the same thing in um, in series four with David Tennant. We finally see the Santorin at the end, but didn't we, we knew they were coming? That's true, but I think it's although like... that was a first reveal for the new viewers, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's what I was just about to say. Whereas with this one, um, well, this. When the Santorin experiment uh, was broadcast, it had only been the previous season when they, when they had first been uh, seen. I do like the appearance of the Santorans here. Mm-hmm. I was just sat watching there. I mean, you could, from one perspective, you could say, "Oh yeah, that looks dated." Um, but I would prefer that in the new era. How how do you mean? More more of the grey, dry skin and the appearance. I mean, I mean, you could have the face more um, articulated, um, but. The skin tone of the Santorans I quite like, mm-hmm. opposed no, no, to I, the new era. Yeah, I agree with that. That's that's one of the things that uh, I mean. No, no disrespect to uh, the designers of uh, of of new Doctor Who who designed the new look of the Santorans. Uh, I can kind of see where they were coming from, but um, my preference... there's been no variations though, has there since? No, no, there hasn't been. But I mean, you you could you could actually argue that that's one thing that New Who has has got right. It's got that consistency with the Santorans because they are a clone race, so mm-hmm. they are supposed to remain exactly the same. Whereas classic Doctor Who, which established all this, but every story that they appear in, uh, they are always massively different from from pe- previous appearances. At the start of the story, um. They've just transmitted down, and um, Tom Baker implies that they're in London. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know he's always joking around, but do you think there was any truth to this? Well, the, uh, the story was written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, and when they have, I you, you can see this uh, on the on the DVD and the Blu-ray uh, special uh, uh, special feature uh, making of documentary. Um, they actually talk about this. That was actually uh, written in the script, and what the writers were hoping was that um, they would be able to have a bit of Trafalgar, uh, like uh, the statue of Trafalgar Square. Ruined, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, poking from from the top, um, but the budget wouldn't allow it. But that that was the idea. That would have looked good, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or would it have? Well, in theory. In theory, <laughs> might, yeah, it might have looked really manky. <laughs> yeah, but actually, I th- to be honest, I, I much prefer it in in this way because it, it does seem that um, this is the Doctor just having a having a nice little bit of a a joke with with Sarah and Harry. Yeah, although I think we'd had enough humour with the whole um, phasing in and out with the transmat and Sarah upside down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true, and it could be said that that was a bit overplayed. Whereas, whereas on this occasion, this is a, a bit nicer. It's a bit more subtle, and it's a bit more. Um, it's a bit more character driven because its characters are, 
uh, reacting to one another and just and just getting on. So it's mm. it's better in that sense. Mm. Harry falls down um, a little bit of a cliff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm guessing this was a stunt double. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, didn't just throw Ian Martin down a hill. <laughs> no, no. Well, if you notice, I think. Um, They've given Harry and the Doctor uh, massive duffel coats for when when the stuntman uh, goes down. Um, okay. It it covers the face, uh, yes. which is you know so it's thought through. But uh, you know when I'm, I'm when I when I was watching it, I, even though I know that I wasn't aware of it, it's it is it is very well handled and very well directed, and, and uh, the camera's placed in just in just the right position. Totally. There is one bit that does stand out for me though. It's the the fight. Between um, Steyer and the Doctor. Yes, the fight between Steyer and the Doctor. You'll have some close-up shots of Tom Baker grinning. Mm-hmm. And then you'll have a, a really wide shot of the back of Tom Baker. And I thought, is that a double? Yeah, but there, there was a reason for that. You probably already know this. Because the, the one thing that, the in terms of Doctor Who fans, uh, the Suntoran experiment is famous for, is that... Um, when they were filming this, there was a moment when um, Tom Baker fell and broke his collarbone. Um, so he had to be rushed to hospital. Uh, and he came back and he was fine, but he had to um, keep his uh, keep his arm in position. If, if you actually... Uh, you, you can tell, sort of if you know this, you can tell bits of the story that was shot pre him breaking his collarbone and afterwards. Um... Because there's bits where he's 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 clearly using his scarf as a as a way of, of keeping his hand in place, and so when it came to those fight sequences, I mean Terry Walsh, who was the stuntman, would have had to perform those stunts anyway. Yeah. But obviously Tom Baker would have been a bit more involved. But obviously they could only do the close-up shots of him, and yeah. then and then in the two shots or whatever for, from the back, it's it is clearly a stunt double. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit less seamless than um, simply. Th- as it appeared that they threw Ian Martyr and Tom Baker down a cliff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, having said that, though, I do think, um, I do think on the whole, it's handled quite well, and mm. I do think the fight is is quite decent. I would say that there's probably, only, I mean, if I was being really nitpicky, I would I would say that there's only probably two shots where it's really noticeable. Harry says it's nice and tidy. There's no lollipop sticks. Um, was littering not such a big deal in the 70s? <laughs> Is that all they had to deal with? <laughs> yeah, probably. Now it's, if, we, if it was us, we'd be like, oh, there's no mattresses or old sofas or anything lying around. There's no burning cars. Oh, come on. Newcastle's not that bad. <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. When did the, when did the uh, Keep Britain Tidy thing start? Was that around in the seventies? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do a quick Google search? Go for it. Oh, all right, okay. Keep Britain Tidy was originally set up at a conference in nineteen fifty-five. Okay, so obviously, people really took it on board, especially in the mid seventies. You know. Um, Obviously, well, Harry, Harry noticed the effect, um, and after a while, everyone just gave up. Yeah, well, well, reading this, right, it goes, 1970s public information films and high-profile national campaigning included many popular faces of the day, such as ABBA, The Walt Disney Company, David Cassidy, Mark Bolan, and Mokum and & Wise, 
and had a marked impact on attitudes towards littering and awareness of the Keeps Britain Tidy brand. Ooh. <laughs> Abba. And I wonder wow. if that influenced the 1977's Clean for the Queen campaign launched for the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Yeah, and then they could yeah. have used Dancing Queen. Dancing away, she keeps Britain tidy. Anyway, one of the things that I find really um, curious about the story, so just as a, 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 I suppose as a quick um, plot summary, what it is is that in the previous story, the Ark in Space, um, the TARDIS crew arrive at Nerva Beacon, uh, Nerva Beacon which is this uh, space station where the vast majority of humanity is in suspended animation, um, waiting to repopulate the Earth, which had been destroyed by solar flares. Anyway, the, obviously there's an adventure, and now that en- that story ends with the fact that all- everyone will have to be tr- uh, teleported down to Earth. There's a bit of an issue with the teleportation thing, hence the reason why the TARDIS crew go down to Earth so the Doctor can fix it. And that's when they encounter, surprisingly, uh, a small uh, group of um, humans. Uh, And what we end up uh, finding out is that they were lured uh, to Earth uh, by this lone Suntaran, who has been tasked to find out what humanity's weaknesses are. And what he does, and it's the experiment of the title, is effectively uh, torture them during, during the story. So this is actually quite dark. Um, and obviously the, the whole story is centred around trying to defeat uh, the Sontaran and prevent the Sontaran fleet from, from coming in. Um, so it's quite a nice little uh, story. But one of the things that I find really curious, because uh, you probably noticed that the, the actors playing um, the humans were um, all speaking with a South African accent. Yes. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, one... The actors themselves were the South African, so you could, okay, that's fine. But Bob Baker and Dave Martin specifically wrote that into the script because they thought that the way that English would develop is that everyone would speak South African. Really? Yeah. I was just going, what, really? When they they talked about it in subsequent years, what they said was obviously what they didn't realise was that uh, the likes of rap and hip-hop and... um, would have an impact on how people talk. So they couldn't foresee that. But even so, it was just sort of, why South African? That's really That's odd. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. Yeah, why would... I mean, keeping in mind that this was uh, this was made when the apartheid was going on. So why would everyone want to talk about talk South African? And... and I didn't I did notice that, obviously, that they, they all were... I thought, like, did they just get, like, a job lot of actors? You know, yeah. all in one go... <laughs> I, but that was the thing. I wouldn't have thought anything of it. It was just that when I was watching the making of documentary, they were, they were talking about this and how it was written into the script. And I just think, that's really curious. That's really odd. I mean, yeah. one, it's a bloody annoying accent. I'm sorry. But um, but I just <laughs> thought it was a really... Uh, oh, God, we're going to get listeners attacking us now. Um, or me. But I just thought that was a really... I don't understand what their thought process was of that. I just think it's really odd. That's strange. But yes, Liam's, Liam's views are his own. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just want to make that clear. You're covered, Rob. It's fine. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> Although it could be guilt by association. But yes, I don't think the entire human empire speaks with that accent. No, well, I, well yeah, hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. Or maybe they all took their own starships. Oh, well, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I 
did point out in a recent podcast, The Beast Below, mm-hmm. and that was from a uh, totally different evacuation of the Earth because of solar flares. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, I'm pretty sure, I checked the dates, I think it was a good four to 6,000 years um, in between these two different evacuation events. Right, okay. Um, and the Beast Below evacu- evacuation with the Starship UK leaving mm-hmm. um, predates this. Oh, right, okay. So the, they've been abandoned at least once um, prior to this. It's all just a happy coincidence that um, the Santorans lured some humans there at the very moment that the Doctor arrives, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. There's it's... been no one there for thousands of years. <laughs> Until that day. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that uh, sort of a lot of people point to is sort of the weakness of, of the story because it's explained in the previous story of the Ark in Space that Earth is being completely abandoned and it's sort of said that is the case here. So why would the Sontaran go to Earth, which is completely abandoned, go through the effort of luring these people on to the planet? Um, it, it's sort of... It, don't try to don't try to look too closely at that. I really don't get it. So they've they've came to this galaxy, uh-huh. um, to the Earth, which is um, it's not in the outer rims of the galaxy. It's not in the center. It's quite just in the middle. Um, it's it's a bit bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, they they come to this this planet and um, they want what a strategic foothold in the galaxy. Yeah. On um, but they need to do uh, the, and the experiment makes no sense. In the grand scheme of things, does it? No, I suppose it doesn't. But if anything, it's it's a bit humorous, you know, the fact that he needs to um, hold off the entire invasion fleet just so, so he can um, finish off his experiments. But it does show um, the possibly some of the Santoran values. You know, they're they're dedicated to um, to what they do. That's true, but. Um... The way that I sort of look at the story is that even though that the Centaurans are a clone race, I think it's clear that it, that's just biological, that they have their own character. So uh, I think it's interesting in this story that you've got Steyr, who's conducting this, uh, these experiments in order to provide a report on the weaknesses of, hu- of humans. Mm. Which, okay, makes a, a sort of sense uh, if you're wishing to go into battle with them. Um, but his... Uh, the the marshal, um, who is who is of a higher rank, keeps on telling him to hurry up with his research, and Steyer keeps deliberately taking his time, and I actually think that, given that what he's doing and the fact that he's deliberately t- taking his time, despite the fact that the marshal keeps on saying, "Will you hurry up, please?" I think it just it, you've actually got a, a really sadistic um, character there, and he clearly relishes in the the pain he is inflicting. Possibly yes, um, but there is a moment where Steyer is talking to the marshal, mm-hmm. and the order for Steyer to do the experiments um, comes from higher up, mm-hmm. um, above the marshal. So, um, but yes, you're right; it is a bit sadistic. But um, perhaps he was just obeying orders. Oh um, yeah, yes, he. Uh, yeah, th- sorry. Um, I think yes, he is. He is obeying orders which is to obtain this information through these experiments. Uh, but what I'm saying is that he is uh, he's deliberately um, prolonging 
that research longer than is needed because he is sadistic and is enjoying uh, inflicting pain more than he needs to. Yes. Yeah, he's tied in with them as well, you know, when they've got the gravity bar. <laughs> yeah, which, a, a which I think... Great bit of acting, yeah. You know, generally, yes, I do think that's a really good, uh, very, piece of, uh, very good piece of acting because obviously that, what is supposed to be a metal bar, would be probably very light. But the way that it is painted, the way that the prop is, that the way that the prop looks, and the way that the actors are performing that, it does generally look like it's incredibly heavy. Yeah. So that... Um, this is a... Um... Some, it's got it was a pure performance you know that it didn't it didn't really um get heavier mm-hmm. this bar and there's another moment in this story where harry um has to act for the invisible force field <laughs> yes yeah yeah um maybe that was less effective as the um the gravity bar <laughs> yeah i would say that because I, I do think this is quite a nice little story it's it's two episodes uh it's it's it, you know, it's engaging. I think it's very well made. It's very well directed. I would say that there are probably two weaknesses to it. One of them is, despite the fact that it is quite a short story, um, it's only two episodes, as I said. Harry doesn't really have that much to do, does he? Uh, he... No. No, there is a moment where Sarah and the Doctor are both incapacitated and... Harry, um, it, it, it almost seems like he's going to be the hero here. Mm-hmm. And he sees one of the prisoners kind of shackled up. And you, you kind of get the feeling that, okay, Harry, he's no longer, well, he's, he's not a third wheel, you know, in this um, TARDIS team. Mm-hmm. He's going to have his moment of shine here. But then all of a sudden the Doctor just wakes up and joins him. So that was a bit of a disappointment to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But funny enough, talking talking about that scene because the uh, because the uh, the Suntaran has been doing all these experiments and they are quite nasty. Um, but the nastiest is the one that Harry comes across, where uh, you've got this. Uh, so you got the prisoner who's shackled up. He's been um, deprived of f- f- uh, food and particularly water. So it's to yes. see how dehydration affects uh, humans been there for nine days yeah yeah and uh i mean one i think that's quite a nasty idea and it's it's realized very well and uh, the actor that they get to uh to play the dehydrated dying uh, prisoner is yeah that, that, that's very effective and that's sort of that's the one sort of abiding memory that i have of the story um so but yes I, I agree with that it's sort of um there are bits where harry's just sort of seems to be climbing over rocks for for quite a for, for quite a while of the story and i suppose he does have his shining moment of glory at the end because he's the one uh who obtains uh the piece of equipment at the very end of the story which makes um Steyer die mm, i'd argue is that his shining moment um because the doctor obviously comes up with a solution he's going to fight the santaran to weaken him yeah and he asks um, Sarah and Harry to go into the ship to get this piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's going to get the Saren to get a bit weakened and he's going to go into recharge and ultimately he dies. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor has made a conscience um, decision to, to do this. Yeah. But he passes this responsibility on to Harry. And then even afterwards, he says, oh, it was all you, you know. 
so this is an instance where the Doctor has intentionally killed, but not only has he killed, he's shifted the blame onto Harry. Ah, oh, right, okay. That's a sort of... I see where you're coming from. That, that... All oh, right, okay. Yeah, I see what you mean, actually. So just... I'm always here to argue with the, about the Doctor's morals, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, okay. No, no, that, that's an interesting sort of take on it. I think I was just... Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. I think you're probably right. I, yeah. All right, okay. So the so, so there's that. Then, so Harry... I think we both agree, uh, regardless of that, that Harry could have been utilised uh, better in this story, especially considering yeah. that it was only two episodes. It, it seems a bit strange how they don't really uh, use him very effectively. Saying that though, sorry, um, when the, Harry does come across the guy that's shackled up, mm-hmm. um, they did portray his character well because he's, um, he's he's being a doctor. You know, he's got this duty of case, checking his eyes, and he goes to get him um, something to drink. He's mm-hmm. speaking to him. Um, so that's a good strength of his. Oh, yes. And, and that's the thing. It's sort of the, the, moments, um, the moments where they do uh, give him something to do they are quite good. There's the, the interaction between uh, Sarah and Harry at the beginning of the story, that moment that we've just discussed. Um, and arguably the, the Doctor involving Harry in his plan to defeat the Sontaran at the end. But there's a lot of there's a lot of gap between those moments. And it, it, I'm just sort of aware that, that Harry isn't really used effectively. Yeah. Uh, but the moments he does have are really rather good. Totally. Yeah. But the, the second... Uh, thing that I have with this story is the robot. <laughs> I've got a burning question. Um, is it on wheels or does it hover? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's. I like to think it hovers around. Well, that again, that was the original idea. The original idea was uh, it was supposed to be uh, a robot that hovered. And I think there was some idea that they would use CSO to use that, but um, for some technical issue, they weren't able to do that. So the best thing that they could do was construct this this robot. Um, it's an interesting design. Um, so uh, for people who aren't familiar with the story, so what Stylus on Taran does is he has this robot which scours the area. It's and just a drone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and it's it's used to uh, kidnap um, people for for him to experiment on it by shackle them and then dragging dragging them up to to where the Santaran is. Um so so the writing of it it makes sense. I haven't got a problem with that. It's just uh it's a very uh interesting design. It just looks a bit um a bit sort of wobbly. Mm-hmm. Uh it it's uh, at the same time it's quite sinister, you know, the way it glides towards you. Mm-hmm. And what one of the guys that um was already on Earth when the doctor arrived um, part of this group he's pursued by the uh, robot mm-hmm. and he kind of glides after him and this guy just ditches his gun it's like oh this is slowing me down I'll drop this yeah. <laughs> as it. and then he decides to just fall over the cliff rather than face this thing <laughs> yeah that's the thing because I I mean, it's it, it's established. It's like he's thought, I'll just choose death here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a bit. I mean, because it's established that the guns don't the guns don't work. Okay, f- fair enough. Uh, and that if you if you get close to this robot, it will it will spring out these shackles at you and kidnap you. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't seem to have any other armaments. So it no. is a bit odd how he just sort of decides I'll just I'll just run off and jump off a cliff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the. It's sort of I can, I can almost deal with it. I can see what they were trying to do, and as I say, I do, I do like the Santoran experiment, uh, and I can sort of forgive it. But at the same time, I am aware, like if I was showing a non-Doctor Who fan, uh, a classic Doctor Who, I don't think I would pick this one, even though it's a short story, because I think. I think a vast majority of people would just look at that and go, I'm sorry, I cannot suspend my... Di- I, I can't suspend my disbelief at this. Yes. There's an interesting moment with the Doctor and this robot. Mm-hmm. It's the final mm-hmm. scene with the robot. I know I'm reading too much into this. And it was just a scene um, to acknowledge the fact that this robot's been dealt with, probably. Mm-hmm. But the Doctor speaks to it calmly, walks towards it and disables it. Yeah. And the way he's speaking, and just by looking at his face, do you think the Doctor feels sympathy towards it when he incapacitates it? You know, given his treatment to other robotic life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know probably not, especially not in the writing, possibly, but you no, know, no. as an in-universe point of thing, <laughs> thing to look at and discuss. I think uh, because, probably not, I can see where you're coming from, but I think with, with other stories which include uh, robots... Funny enough, robot. The beginning, uh, the first story of this season, um, there, there is a big thing where that has a high, highly artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, so can can think and and behave sort of in a, in a human way. And there's this idea that maybe robots can have emotions. Where this is something which is just um, very rudimentary, has no has no free will, has no intelligence of itself. Um, so no, that that's not how I look at that scene. I just think it's the doctor sort of just yeah. uh, approaching it to, to sort of show uh, he's not a threat. Uh, it's to funny it, that so. I didn't I didn't recall the episode robot having a robot. In, you know, <laughs> as I was thinking about that, I was trying to think of other times, uh-huh. um, or maybe he's just got affection for robots with a lower intelligence than him. <laughs> he's got a superiority complex. Or maybe you just felt sorry for it. You just looked at it and went, oh, look at the poor thing. No one can take this sort of thing seriously. <laughs> I'll give it some respect before I disable it. Another great line from Sarah in this, um, when she speaks to one of the guys at the meet, um, do you live here? No, those are space clothes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. No, but um, I think it's one of those things, if you just took the lines out of context, it is It is quite, it is just sort of what? But I, <laughs> I think the way that that is... Uh, the way that that is uh, performed, I think is quite nice because she's just encountered this person. She wasn't expecting there to be anybody. So she's taken yeah. by surprise and just going, you know, trying to establish where he's from. But she's using her own observational skills um, yeah. uh, to determine, oh, no, you, you must have just arrived. You're clearly not from here. Because, yeah. you know. So I, I, I quite like that. I think I'm having a dig at the costume. I quite like it. But yes. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, we can have difference of opinion. You may yeah. think I'm sorry, but I don't know what you're talking about. Like, they look like crap, and you know it. I'm just going, what you're talking about. I think they're quite good. Um, now, uh, one la- one bit of uh, sort of interaction I like is when um, it's between the Harry and uh, Harry and the Doctor, because the Doctor, the Harry, was, the, the <laughs> Harry, sorry, the Harry and the Doctor. Yeah, Harry and the Doctor, because um, Harry had seen the Doctor get shot. So he's saying, oh, I thought you were dead. And he just, uh, he holds up a piece of metal and he goes, oh, um, it's a piece of lock from, from Nerva's rocket, popped it in my pocket. And then he goes, and then Harry goes, oh, well, that's fortuitous. 
and the doctor's busy going oh, foresight uh you never know when things will come in handy never throw anything away and then he just throws it away i know it's it's, <laughs> it's not the most sophisticated joke but i, I do like it <laughs> you know Steyer's transmitter when he's talking to the marshal mm-hmm. why isn't that on his ship do you think uh... <laughs> maybe the the prop of a ship was only kind of one-sided <laughs> possibly yeah I mean I was trying to think of a thing that would that would narratively make sense rather than oh, I suppose the did the destroyer ship no yeah yeah it blows up at the end of course um, narratively they could have kept it outside of a ship because the ship blows up yeah yeah maybe that makes sense <laughs> Yeah, no, I was just trying to think of a narrative reason rather than a but like a, a production decision. I can't, I can't think of one. Well, that's quite a cool prop. It is, yeah, yeah. I think it was it. an actual TV from the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine having that in your living room. Sarah does pretty well with her resistance to fear. There's plenty of screaming, but she does quite well. Yeah, yeah. Would you cope? Do you think? Uh, of what? Sorry. Oh, the um... fear resistance. Uh, depends. Depends what it was. <laughs> I've got no fear of rocks. Uh, would it, or would it be spiders? Oh no, I'd freak out with them. Yeah, I'd. Uh, yeah, I'd basically be the doctor and planet the spiders and be completely yes. freak out and die and turn into Tom Baker. There's a part in this story where the doctor finds Sarah and she's behind Steyer's force field, but then the doctor's discovered by Steyer and um. When the doctor tries to strike him, he's knocked down quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you think Pertwee would have done better here in this situation? Well, funny enough, that's the moment when Tom Baker fell and broke his collarbone. Um, I'm just trying to think. Well, h- how is he in uh, the the Time Warrior? He does seem to handle it better, but he he still gets sort of knocked down, doesn't he? But then, having mm. said that, doesn't the Santarin use his uh, use his weapon? Saying that though, the Tom Baker's quite competent in the fight at the end, isn't he? Yes. Maybe yeah, he was just yeah, take, sure. taken off guard in, in, um, in this instance. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I love how um, when the Doctor is speaking to the Santaran Marshal over the communicator, it takes the Marshal quite a while to realise that he's not talking to Steyer, it's the Doctor. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a video call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a delayed reaction. Yeah. It is quite funny. And it's, and then later on, when uh, when Stiers sort of um, he's exhausted, and that thing of going, "I should kill you all now," but not, but, but, but not yet. I've got some other. I've got some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a man with his priorities. So, given what I said earlier about how the Doctor has killed the Santoran. Mm-hmm. And then also shifts that under Harry. Does that change your perspective of the story? Um, how, how does he shift it back onto Harry? He doesn't put the blame on Harry, but I think I have the feeling that he more or less congratulated Harry because he did it. it he did it in a positive way. Oh, right, yes. You know, um, uh, but oh, with the line, thank Harry, he did it. Yes. Ah, right, okay, right, okay, I get where you're coming from now. Um, I suppose, it, it, obviously, it comes to how you interpret that moment. I think, because I think, obviously, defeating the Sontaran um, 
is seen as a moment of triumph. So the way that I see it, it's, you know, we, the audience, are, you know, it's our experiences as a moment of triumph because the villain has been defeated. So I think what the Doctor is, is doing is just going, right, I was really just distracting him for, for Harry to do the important thing, uh, which is remove this um, this piece of equipment, which will kill us in Tarim, but that's what we have to do. Otherwise, um, because he's a, he's a nasty piece of work, he's been torturing and killing people, and if and we, and if we don't get rid of him, then we've got a whole uh, fleet of Santarans to deal with. Yeah. So the way that I interpret that scene, it's 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 more triumphant. Yes. Sorry, I think I'll forever be looking at the Doctor's moral compass. <laughs> right. Do you think? Do you think there'll be a, a point in his life where is more morally sound? Because of course we've got these key moments in season one where it's just not there you know he's willing to kill <laughs> and it's got to the point now where his morals are questionable do you think there's ever a point in one of the classic doctor's lives where he's at his most against killing possibly peter davison possibly i mean the, the thing is i don't think that the doctor has never actually been anti anti-killing um or anti-using weapons. If you, if you if you look at the doctors, I, although what he is is someone who will always use that as the very last resort. He's mm-hmm. someone who would much rather use his his brain than uh, first than his brawn, if you like. Um, however, having said that, going back to the previous point, there is that sense of that him being with humans does make him better. So when you see see the first doctor in an unearthly child. You know, he is about to bash the brains of, of someone who is slowing their escape down. And it's it's uh, Ian it's, who it's stops Ian, him. yes. Yeah. Uh, but then it's interesting because he's still that amoral character when you get to the next story, the Daleks. But he is still horrified by the Daleks and their desire to commit mass genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that sort of complexity. But as the series progresses, he, he does become the much more heroic person that we recognise him for, but that's because of his relationship with Ian and Barbara and how they make him better. Um, so, there, there, yeah, there is that. Yeah, I think there's always a good compelling argument for having the companions there mm-hmm. and why they're at the foreground of the story a lot. You know, they're an um, important part of his the Doctor's dynamic, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So I think um, that's pretty much everything covered. I think it's... Uh, a nice little Doctor Who adventure to to enjoy. It's just you know it's two episodes long, fifty minutes in total. I think it's quite uh, it's quite interesting. It's quite enjoyable to watch. Um, so yeah, I quite like it. If uh, if you were to give it a ranking, uh, have you got a thought in mind, Rob? Um, I was gonna say a seven out of ten. Oh, that's quite good. Because um, yeah, I was torn between a six or a seven. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I'll probably give it uh, give it six. I think we've pointed out a lot of positives about the story. Mm-hmm. Um, everything I said earlier, in spite of all these drawbacks it could have had, it really works. Even though it's not much of a compelling story, you know, if I wanted to introduce my wife to Doctor Who, I wouldn't pull the Santoran experiment off the shelf and <laughs> no. say, "This is entry level stuff here. This is really good," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it flows well with. Um, the rest of the season doesn't it mm-hmm. but at the same time you, you can enjoy it on its own um, totally yeah yeah I could quite happily watch this without 
having the desire to, to binge on the whole of season 12. Although I would quite happily binge season 12, so you know. Yeah, and it's a very short story. You know, mm-hmm. two-parter. It's not, it doesn't get boring because of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, had this been a six-parter... <laughs> <laughs> oh, blimey. Well, if it was a six-parter, what I would expect them to do is ha- it would have to have a bit more bigger budget and I would expect to see the space fleet at the end. But as it stands, oh god! <laughs> Jeez, imagine yeah. if this was the sixth part and Genesis of the Daleks was two. <laughs> Had that been done on a lower budget, yeah. just in fields, <laughs> just this one Dalek representing all of them, just trundling along Dartmoor. Maybe we should check out more season twelve soon. Oh, I'd very happily uh, do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you've enjoyed this we've got other podcasts you can check out of our Tom Baker ones we've recently covered Scratchman mm-hmm. co-written by the late great Ian Mora and Tom Baker uh, we've also looked at the five doctors uh, which even though Tom Baker isn't in it, isn't in it all, an awful lot uh, he is in there uh, and of course who can forget the absolutely wonderful uh, dimensions in time uh, we did a previous podcast where we look at that and a couple of other um, sort of charity specials um, and that's rather wonderful. Tom Baker actually opens up uh, Dimensions in Time. So yeah, we've covered that in a previous podcast as well. Yeah. Well, thanks again. See you next time. Yep. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.